Welcome to Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z, the ultimate guide for real estate investors. I'm your host, Steph Boldrini. We cover everything you need to know from finding and analyzing properties to financing and managing your investments. Tune in every week for experts' insights and tips so you can make your commercial real estate dreams come true. And in today's episode, we are covering family offices. What do they look for in a deal? How do they manage their investments? Are they risk takers or not? And how are they evaluating deals in today's market? We are chatting with Erwin Boris. He is responsible for acquisitions and asset management at Paycar Capital. This is his very first podcast interview. And as you all know, I love first time podcast guests. Here we go. Arwen, thank you so much for joining us today. You were one of my favorite speakers at Family Office Club conference the other day and um, most eloquent, thoughtful. And I really appreciate you saying yes for coming here. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about you, please? Sure. My pleasure. Erwin Boris. I've been in this business all my life. I have an undergraduate degree in accounting. I passed the CPA exam. I practiced accounting, all real estate clients. And I've always been either, once I left there, I was either on the banking side, working for banks, or working for owner-operators in family offices, building income-producing portfolios. So right now, I work with a family office. It's a fourth-generation family office, and we're building another portfolio, and we aggregate them, and then we look for cap rate compression on an exit. But you know, one advantage we have is we don't really care if there's an exit. As long as it's cash flowing, uh, that's all that matters. So we always make sure to take enough term on our debt to ride out any bumps like we're having here now. God forbid you needed to refinance. Uh, we don't have anything that matures for a year and a half, so I think we're safe. And the ideal acquisition for us is something where the return is half through cash flow and half through appreciation. We're not buying value adds and selling you on an IRR. And I could name a dozen people that are all over the internet uh, on social media doing yeah. that, and some of them are in lawsuits now. It's more important to have cash flow, especially as a family office, and especially when you have other families invest with you or high net worths. We have a bunch of people in the medical community, and for them, it's about having a stream of cash flow when your hands and your eyes are on, on their game and you can't practice anymore. Uh, and at least if you're getting you know, 8 or 9 or 10% or more current cash flow, you could always reinvest that and compound it. If I'm betting on an IRR and I'll have to exit now because my debt's maturing, or you're one of those unlucky people that's getting a capital call notice from one of your sponsors, you're not very happy. And, and being an older American, as my, my children will say, uh, I've seen the cycles a few times. I know what I'm looking for and what I'm not looking for. And we don't take a lot of leverage. We like to sleep at night. And so if I lose... Uh, a third of my tenants, if it's a multi-tenant building, uh, we're not worried about being able to pay the mortgage. So it's about having all your belts, your suspenders, your bootstraps, your, you know, being ready for anything. You know, you're not the first person that started to mention about IRRs lately and how they're not a good metric, especially right now. But I still remember 2018, 2020, everybody was raising on that IRR. 
And if we are more conservative, they're still going to go with these people that are promising crazy RRs. And now these people are having cash calls. So how do you explain that to your investors that it's a much safer investment when everyone else is pitching a high IRR? It's really easy. If you think about it, it's math. The more or the higher the current cash flow that's distributed, the lower the internal rate of return. Of course, distributions are dilutive to the back-end IRR. And it's like gambling. Do you want to bet it all or nothing? So if you're, if you're focused on an IRR, you know it has to work out because the chances are uh, it, you're getting nothing. So I like to sleep at night, and I'd rather know that if it's a bad investment and we had a 10-year loan, and we held it for 10 years, and I got 10% on my money, I got my money out, plus the depreciation, and then I got my principal back. Yeah. Where if I'm betting it all on something that may never happen, I'll be lucky to get my principal back. Exactly. At, at the end. And here you got your return through cash flow, and then get your money back. So even if you sell it at a scoff a bit of a slight loss after 10 years, you've already got your money back. So it, it's about... Safety and and the, the economy ran so hot for so long with these cap rates and these interest rates, which is really what fueled all these guys. Yeah. You know, if you think about it, when the tide rises, even the boats with the you know the holes in the bottom come off the bottom of the ocean. And that's really what <laughs> exactly. happened. Except for the last twelve months, it was really hard to screw up a deal. You had to really work at it to <laughs> screw it up. And so, a lot of people made money on some of their first deals. You know, whether it was 2018, 2019, 2020, and they kept throwing more money at it, more money. And then all of a sudden, the, the music stopped. When people say to me, and, I, and, I've, and I've spoken at the family office, and they say to me, what's a bad investment? I said, I got my cash flow, but there was no pop at the end, yeah. but I still got my principal back. Yeah. And I still beat the treasury. I still beat everything else. And I, I slept at night, knowing that I got that money back through cash flow. And so... Don't bet the stars. Everybody wants you know, to hit a grand slam. It doesn't happen. It's a game of putting men on base and scoring runs as one advances the next, like baseball. It's a terrible analogy, uh, yeah. especially working with my money is in the deal uh, and family offices where it's family money. Even when we syndicate a deal, we hold 25% of it. And so it's about preserving capital. And that's why the cash flow is more important than the IRR. So how were you evaluating deals when the market was hot and extremely competitive? And how has that changed today? When the market was hot, we, we stopped doing multifamily early, probably about four or five years ago. And we sold a bunch of them. We only hold, you know, there's only one uh, multifamily project that I'm, I'm involved with right now. And, and people call to buy it every day of the week. And I said, look, I got six years left on my mortgage. We only half renovated half the units. I, I really don't care. If you make me a stupid offer, we'll, we'll consider selling it because I have no place to put the money. So, you know, we don't really care about it. But we've, I've been doing industrial for many years. And so it's a cap rate play. What's the spread between your going in current cash flow and your cost of finance? If I could buy on a nine and a half and I could finance on a seven and a half and I can get 65% leverage with some interest only, I could probably get eight and a half or nine current out of the deal after closing costs. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's really what I, I look at it. It's an old fashioned, you know, if you can't do it on a cocktail napkin, don't yeah. do the deal. I, I, we're the principal of a family office and we go to somebody's 
uh, he says, somebody wants to sell us a thousand units in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is like nine years ago when no one knew where Raleigh was. And he gets me this information and he says, you know, and he's a smoker. So he, so he says to the seller, he goes, oh, we're going to go outside, have a cigarette. We'll talk to Irwin and figure out a price. And he says, you didn't bring your laptop? I said, no, it's really easy. I had a three, an index card. And I said, we're going to take the rent roll. We're going to take off 90, you know, 5% for vacancy and collection, 45% expenses. Here's your net income. We're going to cap it at a seven because I know the financing cost was, I think, three and a half. And this, I think, is going to be your cash flow. Can you live with that? He goes, oh, that's a great deal. He throws the index card at the seller who countersigned it and sent us a contract. It's like something you'd never, you know, you'd never expect in real life. But that's how they're done. Very simple. Yeah. So, yeah. So we, you know, we'll look at if it's a deal that the, the, the delta between the going in cap rate and the financing rate is tighter. It's a question of what is the upside look like? What is it going to cost you to renovate? What is the return on that cost for apartments? And then how fast can you get them renovated? Now, what happened was with COVID, I knew people with projects, you couldn't get employees in there. The, the contractors had no people. Some contractors were stretched so thin, a few of the, the regional ones in New Jersey anyway, filed for bankruptcy because they took everybody's deposits. They got everybody stretched out and they couldn't finish the renovation. So it's about knowing who you're hiring. But now construction costs are, are so high I think you'd have to get five, almost $500. I'm looking at one project that I asked to manage for someone, and they're telling me that it's like $22,000 to renovate an apartment. I said, but you're only getting $275. It doesn't pay. Return on investment isn't there anymore. It's simple math. Anybody can make a spreadsheet look pretty and sing to an investor. And when you ask a sponsor, can I have the spreadsheet? I want to stress it. And they, they, they play dumb, run. Yeah. There's one sponsor who's all over the internet who's raised billions of dollars, you know, has billions of real estate. They send me these deals they're buying in Houston. They're buying them from Alliance Residential. So it's not a mom and pop. They're buying them from Alliance Residential, and they tell me they're going to take the occupancy from 88 to 92 and move rents 20% at the same time in three years. And then there's going to be a big cash out refinance in year three, and I'm going to get a big pop and still hold it. So I said to them, Send me the live model. What do you need that for? I said, I want to play with the financing assumptions. I, they wouldn't send this. Stop talking to me. Wow. So if, if it's not open kimono with full transparency, don't work with that sponsor for your yeah. own sake. Yeah. So, but it's an interesting market out there. The last six years, seven years, I guess you had a lot of new sponsors who were lucky they made money. But as we all read the papers, some of those same sponsors now have thousands of units in default or impending default or in special servicing because they were either undercapitalized or the sponsor had really phantom equity in the deal based on the fees they took out of closing. So uh, you got to be, you know, get a watch. Always. And uh, as you just said, this is a billion dollar plus sponsor, right? So it's, <laughs> you cannot trust anybody. So do your due diligence. And I know that family offices, their goal is typically to obviously maintain their wealth, right? So does that mean that the deals that they're looking for are more conservative, that they're not, as you were alluding to earlier, really looking at that IRR is really, are we going to be able to maintain it and is a safer investment? So is it safe to say that they don't really go for the crazy potential exits? No, family offices usually have a mix of capital that they do. Sometimes there is some risk capital 
some invest, uh, you know, some are angel investors and have, done, have been very successful with startups. Uh, and they work with consultants that help them find these deals. Some will, you know, do IPOs. Some are in medical and healthcare because, you know, maybe the office was founded by a doctor or a medical group. Uh, it could be a multifamily family office that does these things. But again, it's all about how do you get out? You got to be able to tell me what the exit is before we get out. But here, you know, we have an operating business that generates revenue that's outside of the real estate. But in the real estate, we built a, a large building and we, you know, we knew 70% of at least well, as soon as we broke ground. So we didn't really care the other 30% was vacant because it carried itself. Now we just got the last piece leased. So at this part of the cycle, I don't think I would build an empty building and, uh, uh, you know, speculatively, because I, I see plenty of empty buildings on the Jersey Turnpike that, that were built that are all empty, you know, class A industrial, 36 foot ceilings. I think everybody wishes they didn't build them. But that's why, like, where would I buy? It's never going to be something that's going to be the shiny new toy that you want to put on the cover of your corporate brochure. Uh, I, I want to buy stuff that's going to stay full and, and, and pay rent. So like one of the guys I work with, he, he, he jokes with me that I like to shop on the island, the misfit toys, you know, move them around. And sometimes you, you can see how to, you know, put a little shine and a little polish on it. And when you look at some of these buildings, especially in the industrial and the flex, tenants have a reason that they're there. It doesn't have to be the main industrial corridor. It doesn't have to be the central business district. The one thing I did learn in the last five years is it's not that easy for employers to pick up and move. Uh, I worked with someone who did an exchange uh, earlier this spring, and they bought a building in Indiana. And my first concern was that there was only you know, six years left on the lease. And what was going to happen then? But when you look into the tenant and you realize they employ 400 people in two shifts of 200 each, and they're open 18 hours a day or something like mm. that, they can't move to the other side of town so easily to save a dollar a square foot rent because the employees can find another job if depending on what they do there and make more money. So yeah. it's about part of your due diligence shouldn't be just about the health of the company and their sales and the real estate comparables and what is everybody else paying in rent. It should also be what goes on behind the walls. How many people work here? How long have they worked for you? What would you, you know, talk to the manager? What is their average commuting distance? It's, it's the human side of it, which really gives me a lot of comfort, especially at this point of where we are on the cycle. That's a great tip. With regards to getting down and dirty to your hardest deals, can you talk about some of them, please, and lessons learned? Sure. There, there's always deals that die in due diligence. And hopefully... It, they die earlier than later because you have out-of-pocket costs. We have one deal that we really liked that was upstate New York in the vicinity of Ithaca College. It sat on a lot of excess land that was zoned for industrial or multifamily, whatever I wanted to build there. Basically, the land was free. The building carried it. It was a covered land play with a lot of excess uh, land where the current ownership had already gone through the uh, uh, PUD approval with the municipality. So I just needed site plan. And, you know, in the middle of due diligence, the seller tells me that their major tenant called them that they don't need all the space. They want to negotiate, renegotiate their lease and give back, you know, 20% of their, their space. So I'm like, oh, great. I said, I don't want to deal with this now. 
<laughs> and then the lenders appraiser found that this, there was a sublet listing on CoStar for the space. So unfortunately for these sellers who were all in their late 70s and early 80s, they've owned this thing for quite some time. They asked me, what do we do? I said, you really don't have a choice but to renegotiate their lease now and ask them for another five or seven years before their options. Because three years from now, when they can up, up for renewals, they got you. And they'll tell you what they're going to pay. Here, you still have a little bit of strength. They ended up doing it, taking my advice. And they took back, the, you know, they wrote down the rent a little bit. They, got, it's a, they have seven years left before the five, two five-year renewal options. But unfortunately, uh, based on the revised income, I, I couldn't stand behind the price anymore. So there's always going to be deals in due diligence that die in due diligence. And there's no way to really flush those out in advance. One thing I do do with commercial buildings is I like to get the, the 10 largest tenants on the telephone and interview them. How's business? How many people? What are you doing? Are you back to the office? Are you, are you still remote? You know, How's your square footage working out for you? So you, you flush a lot of these things out when you have those interviews. Don't just rely on an engineering report and appraisal. Uh, and the financials, because the tenants are going to tell you what the, your future of the building is after you close. Yeah. One of my favorite commercial books says the same thing. Talk to all of the tenants, as many as possible. No, it's important. It really is. I, I bought a deal right at the beginning of COVID in Atlanta. And in interviewing the tenants, I one of the tenants, I found out they needed another 5,000 square feet that the management company or the seller didn't know about. So you might get some plus surprises, too. Yeah. So let's shift to a little of a closing question. Where do you think things are going? Uh, we just got news that the rates are going to be the same, probably stay the same for a while. Tell us when will you be investing? We're investing now. We have an accepted offer on a sale leaseback. It's 800,000 feet in three locations. We're buying it at a high cap rate because of the cost of financing. Uh, we'll structure it to protect ourselves. In a high rate environment, especially on a multi asset portfolio, I'm not, it, it's hard to really figure out what the future value is in three different states. Yeah. So we're not opposed to amortization. Uh, so like the investors will get eight instead of nine on their money, which is still fine, still beats the treasury. So, we, you, know, we, you know, I made another offer on another portfolio where they were trying to sell it on an eight. And I said, well, when the Fed raises rates in November, that's going to be your cost of financing. So I, I bid it on a nine and a quarter. I'm sure the broker's going to call me and give me an earful, but they understand. So I'd say that you can never really time the bottom. We're getting to the bottom where we're going to yep. plateau out by the first of the year. So if you have capital and you want to know when, when to buy, you should really start looking now because you can't time the absolute bottom. And if you yep. could, by the time you hit the bottom of that point, you can't get in the water fast enough with everybody else. Yeah. And at least then, by then, you will have some kind of a reputation and you, you close in these markets. So the deals will follow you. So I would tell people that now I think is the time to buy. You know, it's a terrible thing to say, but someone said to me, you know, the time to buy is when there's blood in the streets, even if some of it is your own. One person I know told me that was a terrible thing to say because some people are really suffering on their investments. Mm -hmm. And, well, you know, one man's you know, ill is another man's gain. It's just the way it yeah. is. Same thing with the stock market. There are deals out there. I, I wouldn't be afraid to make an offer, even if the broker tells you it's a ridiculous offer, because you really never know what's going to happen. Everybody knows what the cost of financing is. 
And it's about the sellers coming to reason that they're not getting that money unless they're sitting on it for another couple of years. And then I don't think cap rates or interest rates are going to go back to where they were two and a half years ago. I just don't. Anytime they, soon or ever? I don't think interest rates, I don't think you can be able to get a 3%, uh, 3.5% 10-year uh, CMBS loan again. I just don't. That's okay. 65%. I have some of them. I, do I see it? No. We did some uh, floating rate deals. I think I'm 120 over SOFR and SOFR was nothing. So I'll, I'm locked in at 2% and I took a seven-year interest rate cap three years ago. The cap is paying. I'm laughing. But I don't expect to ever see those numbers again. And so the industrial that sold on four and a half, maybe the institutional quality, quality gets to a five and a half, where now maybe it's a six and a half. Although uh, brokers are still telling me six and a half and the guys on the finance side of the desks are telling me it's not trading. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Wow, this has been wonderful. Any other recommendations, thoughts, feedbacks for our audience? There are plenty of deals out there. It's a question of looking in non-traditional places. We see it on occasion uh, from talking to our attorneys or, or accounting firms, uh, people that have exchanges or people that are thinking of selling, but they just don't know what to do with the money. Uh, and sometimes you try to structure something where they can take half of their money out and still stay in and get some of the upside with you. Or you can go to contract and, and give them on an installment sale basis, minimize any tax gains so they don't have to worry about it. We have people that come to us all the time, you know, I, I have an exchange. What do you have? Where can I park my money? And so we have structured deals with, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten common entities or ticks sometimes to do that. So there's always money out there looking to be placed, and there's always deals for sale. So talk to the brokers, talk to your accountants and attorneys, see if they know anything. Don't be afraid to offer brokers a lot less, and yeah. at least they know you're serious. So I'm not afraid to send anyone a, a letter of intent with, with a nine cap on it in a dollar, you know, computed into a, uh, a dollar amount, because I know I'll close on that. I don't, you know, if I was buying a $10 million deal, I wouldn't even necessarily worry about financing. If I could raise $10 bucks, I'd buy it all cash. So if you're an investor that works with smaller deals, think about raising the money and closing cash. Sometimes you can get seller financing. I was offered one seller financing on a flex property down in the Baltimore market. Unfortunately, we're apart on price, but he was willing to hold five-year, 5% paper. But he wanted a price that was just made no sense. I don't think I could refinance out. So be creative. Don't be afraid. If you're a buyer and you have cash, I think you're really in the driver's seat. Agree. Fantastic time to buy. Finally, Erwin, thank you so much for joining us today. I really, really appreciate your time and your insights. Oh, thank you for having me. This was great. Thank you. How our listeners can get in touch with you. I'm yeah, it, it's easy. You can put my name in Google. You'll find me. My, my cell phone and my email, fortunately or unfortunately, are in my LinkedIn profile. Uh, you know, I, I mentor people. It's it's part of what I do. You got to give back because that's where people learn. Thank you so much, Erwin. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And if you haven't already signed up for our summit coming up in three weeks, go to aresummit.com and use code SUMMIT20. The prices are going up weekly and we cannot wait we have a fantastic lineup of speakers we are covering advanced real estate investing techniques 
and couldn't be more excited for this event in LA. I look forward to seeing you there.